Please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. And Father in heaven, we ask your blessing as we continue to work through the book of Exodus. And we ask your blessing as we aim to conclude one of the greatest books in the Old Testament. And we ask you to bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. Look at verse 1, if you will, please. And this is a thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them, to minister unto me in the priest's office. Take one young bullock and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, and cakes unleavened, tempered with oil, and wafers unleavened, anointed with oil. Of wheat and flour shalt thou make them. And this is a thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them. Hallow, Old English, for dedicate, consecrate. To minister, to serve me in the priest's office. Old Testaments, a physical priesthood, an office denoting responsibility today, a spiritual office. Denoting, yes, responsibility, but of course, leaders today, like I say, leaders today, like I say, don't dress up. Leaders today, like men, are still responsible to assist those that are saved, but not in the same way as they were back in the Old Testament. Take one young bullock. A bullock was an ox or a castrated bull. Take one young bullock and two rams without blemish. A ram, of course, was a male sheep. Keep your hand there and go to Ephesians chapter 5. If you think of the book of Daniel, the uh, reference to rams is found five times, dealing with eschatology, of course. There are probably four or five ways to exegete the scripture. You have the spiritual interpretation, the historical interpretation, the eschatological interpretation. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. The Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as a lamb. A ram is a male sheep, of course. The devil is pictured as a cherub, the anointed cherub. And of course, that's in reference to the angelic world. Christ is called the angel of the Lord. Satan is called an angel of light. If you're not a Bible reader, if you're not a Bible believer, you may fail to get the difference between the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, Satan, of course. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 27, if you will, that he, Jesus, might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy, but that it should be holy and without blemish concerning imputation, of course. One more, go to First Peter. Standing and states are not the same. Uh... If you are a saved person, you are safe in the beloved. Praise the Lord for that. You've been justified. You've been exonerated. You have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But your state, your state can flourish. Going back to the lady that we mentioned last week, former prostitute, back on the drugs. She said, the craving is killing me. The craving for heroin is killing me. And just a few days ago, I was out about on my travels and I saw a woman that we haven't seen in a while, another Christian woman. And she was a prostitute as well before she got saved. And she's lost her mind, basically. And I saw her speaking to herself, arguing with a lamp post. <sighs> it's the flesh you see. Uh, you reap what you sow. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 18. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. You can't pay your way out of purgatory. From your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers. But the church fathers taught this. The church fathers taught that. We're going to follow the church fathers. That's what the church of Rome like to state. 
But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, without blemish, without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, declared in these last times for you. Go back to the book of Exodus. Standing in state, not the same, like I say, and this woman I saw a few days ago, I've seen her quite often actually in the last few weeks. She doesn't remember me, but I remember her. And uh, she's a lost soul, speaking to herself, arguing with herself. And she's reaping what she has sown. She's gone back to the drink, you see. Exodus 29, Exodus 29. Look at verse 1 again. And this is a thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them, to consecrate them, in reference to Aaron and co, to minister unto me in the priest's office. Take one young bullock and two rams without blemish. Perfect, upright. And unleavened bread, unleavened, going back to not raised uh, by leaven, barn or yeast. Basically it's flat. Unleavened bread and cakes unleavened, tempered with oil, and wafers unleavened, anointed with oil, of wheat and flour, shalt thou make them. Wheaten is a type of charity and love. If you think of wheat and tares, uh, Matthew chapter 13, you understand the analogy. Again, there are multiple ways to understand the scripture. Historical, prophetical, uh, doctrinal, of course, that's the most important, doctrinal. And if you get those all straight, all clear, and also uh, prophetical, you will never go astray. So for the Old Testament, physical priesthood, physical animals to consecrate, to sacrifice. And I'll discuss that more this morning. For today, we sacrifice ourselves. We put the old man to death. And of course, when we do that, we're able to grow and be at peace with ourselves and also with the Lord. Look at verse 3. And thou shalt put them into one basket and bring them in the basket with the bullock and the two rams. So the animal, innocent, has fallen due to Adam's fall. The animal is basically going to die in your place, basically. Jesus Christ is called the angel of the Lord, denoting deity, obviously. He's called the Lamb of God, denoting his sacrificial death. And here you've got bullocks, rams, two types of animal that are going to be sacrificed on behalf of the people. Look at verse 4. And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shalt wash them with water. Keep your hand there and go to first. Peter chapter 3, I dread to think how many people have perished and will perish trusting in water to save their souls. Some years ago we were in uh, Bristol doing a very successful outreach, one of the best we've ever done. And uh, a pastor came over to myself and one of the brothers and we got talking and it always starts off very well. Praise the Lord, it's good to see you brother. A good handshake, so on and so forth, uh, a pat on the back in a spiritual sense. We've had people over the years bring us coffee on the streets, bring us slices of pizza on the streets, bring us pasties on the streets. Certainly nice when it's cold and, and uh, it's winter time. But this guy came over to us and he said, uh, I am from such and such a church. I hadn't heard of it, of course. And he said, uh, we are here on a regular basis getting the gospel out. And I said, wonderful, praise the Lord. And within five minutes, we got on to what's the gospel. And that's when everything starts to fall apart. Nine out of ten churches in this country think you have to be baptized to be saved. Nine out of ten. I will lower that to maybe eight out of ten. But no less than seven out of ten. And we got talking about salvation. And this verse came up. Uh, this verse came up. First Peter uh, chapter 3. Look at verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient. Going back to spirits. Verse 19. And Christ uh, dying for the sins of the world. Verse 18. 
which some time were disobedience, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. God is long-suffering, patient, not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. While the ark was a preparing picture of our salvation, Christ would be waiting in heaven for two, three thousand years to come to the earth to die for our sins. While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, few, the gate to heaven is wide, but few there be which find the gate, the entrance, the way to eternal life, wherein few, that is eight souls, eight souls were saved by water. And this guy was making the case, and I've heard this so many times over the years, that we are saved by being baptised in water. And I thought, if you don't repent of that nonsense, you're going to perish. Paul would say he wasn't sent to baptise, but to preach, to preach the gospel. Yes, Paul would baptise people. Yes, Peter would baptise people. John the Baptist would baptise Jesus who of course was without sin, and the apostles were baptised one another, but it didn't save them. And this verse always gets quoted. Look at verse 21. The like figure. It's a picture of something. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. In what sense? In the sense of a testimony. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, like redeeming you of all of your past, present and future sins, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So basically, a physical water baptism is an outward act, James chapter 2, justification in the sight of men, of an inward act, Romans chapter 4, justification in the sight of God. And I don't know how many people have perished and will perish trusting in their water to save them. 22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Go back to the book of Exodus. So water appears back in the Old Testament. The priests would have to wash up before they would sacrifice the animal. Christ would wash the feet of the apostles, John 13. We looked at that some weeks ago. So verse 4 again. And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall wash them with water. The priests in the Old Testament were like butchers. Butchers wash their hands, they clean their hands. Or if you go into a restaurant, you expect the chef or the cook to prepare their hands or to wash their hands, to put a covering over their head so hair doesn't fall into your food. You expect that. If you make your own food, you wash your hands, don't you, before you cook, at least you should do. And here for the Old Testament, Aaron, type of a high priest, who is a high priest, I should say, but Aaron, as the high priest, is a type of butcher. He's going to cut the animal up. He's going to carve the animal up. And water is connected with his ritual. Now for today we get saved, we are baptised in water. First Peter chapter 3, verse 20, 21 and 22. But it doesn't save us. It doesn't save us. So when people say they are saved by being baptised in water, they are lost. They are lost. You're saved by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 5. And thou shalt take the garments, and put upon Aaron the coats, and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod, and the breastplates, and gird him with a curious girdle of the ephod. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head, and put the holy crown upon the mitre. Go to Isaiah 59. So the mitre, like I said last week, was a basic turban, a wraparound turban. On top of the turban, you've got a crown picturing the authority of the high priest. Ephod is found three or four times from 29 verse 5. And if you think of Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59 uh, look at verse 16, an interesting cross-reference. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor, no mediator. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness 
it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Same sort of a thing. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what you've just read is the Messiah, obviously a son of Israel. Or turn it around, you've got Israel, a son of God. David is called the firstborn of God, not in a, uh, in the sense of time. He was the youngest, of course, of Jesse's sons, uh, but in the, son, in the, in the uh, sense of preeminence. I see some brothers at times using iPads uh, during a Bible study, and they just skim their way through the digital pages. I'm still doing it to the old way. Uh, maybe one day I'll get myself an iPad, and I can just fly through the verses. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse 8. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul picks up the analogy, go back to the book of Exodus, and he spiritualizes it. You know that nobody in the New Testament was, wear, was wearing a mitre, a literal ephod. There was no need to sacrifice animals in the New Testament. Yes, Paul would do that from the book of Acts. And it's been said by some that when he did that in the book of Acts, he temporarily fell from grace. But on top of that, you have to be mindful that Paul was all things to all men, that he might win some to the Lord. Go back to verse 5 again. And thou shalt take the garments and put upon Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with curious girdle of the ephod, with a curious girdle of the ephod. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head, make him a king, give him authority, and put the holy crown, the holy crown, upon the mitre. Go to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9. The term garments, or garments, is found multiple times in the Bible. The first time a garment turns up, it's to do with Adam and Eve's fall. And uh, that's a picture, of course, of our imputation. But the first term, or the first time, the word garment arrives is from Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, look at verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. Go to Revelation 16. He got drunk. He was a good man. He fell. Never rejoice when a good man falls. Never rejoice when a good woman falls. We've spoken about two sisters that we loosely know who are currently battling the flesh. One has gone back on to uh, drugs. Uh, the other has gone back on to the booze, back on to alcohol. Both in a very precarious state. Uh, one is on the brink of losing her mind, arguing with herself, like I say, shouting and swearing in the street. Pretty disturbing. The other one is trying to put the old man down. Uh, Revelation 16, Revelation 16 Look at verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. In the context, tribulation, in the context, pre the second advent, but it has some reference concerning our standing in the Lord. Go back to the book of Exodus. So the high priest was to dress a particular way. The high priest was to stand out, was to be an example. There's no such thing as impeccability, infallibility in the scripture. Only one man was perfect. At the moment, our prime minister is being battered by the media, being tossed to and fro, having his personal life raked up and just put all over the place, all over the media. They've been doing that to the American president for the last four years. But I've been following politics for 25 years. 
and I can't think of many leaders, excluding the former French leader, a guy called Jacques Chirac, who was very colourful. Yeah. Occasionally, his personal life would make it into the French, uh, French papers, but the French media were very deferential, very careful what they would say about their presidents up until probably the late... 1980s, the American media are very careful about what they would say about their American presidents, their, their, their leaders, their commander-in-chief, as they call him, very deferential. And here, the British press, like I say, are very much enjoying kicking the PM. And yet, how about some of the females that run the world? I can think of three or four, five or six female leaders from this country, from countries in the continent, from places like South Korea and elsewhere that have got into a real spin. I can remember when uh, Cherie Blair was in Downing Street with her husband. She was very close to a particular woman who was into the occult. And Cherie and this woman, Carol Kaplan, her name was, would travel the world together. Thanks to the British taxpayer, they were going to the pyramids. They would do their rituals, their deeds and their beads all over the media at the time. Not television, but some of the print press. But that died down, you see. didn't go anywhere. But if you are a conservative with a lowercase c like the current Prime Minister or the current American President, liberal conservatives, you understand, then you are game for a kicking. And that will take the garments, 29.5 garments, and put upon Aaron the coats and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and gird him with the curious girdle of the ephod. A girdle is a belt. It's a belt for your waist, obviously. And if you think of uh, gird up your loins, basically pull up your loins so they don't get dirty, they don't get contaminated. Going back to Revelation 16, 15. You want to get a crown at the judgment seat of Christ? There could be five, there could be four, there could be three, there could be two, there could be one. I doubt many of us will get two or three crowns. If you go back to the Dark Ages, when people were suffering terribly for their faith, they may get five. But in recent years, I think the average Christian will probably get one, maybe two crowns. And that shall put the mitre upon his head. And put the holy crown upon the mitre. High priest, picture in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. Then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. Keep your hand there and go to Hebrews chapter 1. Spiritual, prophetical, historical, doctrinal. These are all justifiable uh, ways to exegete the scripture. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 can help us with this. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Father speaking to the Son, a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. As of right now, he's ruling in a spiritual sense, but one day, Luke chapter 1, he gets the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. 9. Thou hast loved righteousness. Thou hast loved righteousness, past tense. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. God is angry with the wicked every day. God hates all workers of iniquity. You want somebody who is perfect, flawless, flawless, a lamb without spot and blemish. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't look at me. Don't look at Patrick. Don't look at your favourite pastor, deacon, elder, your favourite priest if you are a papist, or vicar if you are a Protestant. All those people are all flawed. We're all flawed. I'm flawed. Patrick's flawed. You are flawed. We're all flawed. That's what makes Christianity, uh, Christianity so special. Somebody who hated iniquity, loved righteousness. Could Muhammad say that? No. Could Confucius say that? No. Could Buddha say that? No. Buddha would get drunk. Confucius would get drunk. Buddha would abandon his family. Confucius would disappear for long periods of time. Muhammad would have women left, right and centre. On one occasion he took his son's wife 
to be his wife. But Jesus Christ loved righteousness, hated iniquity. But look at this. Therefore God, even thy God, in reference to the Father, of course, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Not physically. David was physically anointed with oil. Saul was physically anointed with oil. Christ was baptized by John, but nobody put oil on his head. None of the high priests came anywhere near him. They loathed him. They would loathe John the Baptist as well. But Jesus Christ has been anointed. Oil of glad tidings. Picture the Holy Ghost, of course. Go back to the book of Exodus. Seven again. Then shalt thou take the anointing oil. Physical, literal oil. David, like I say, Saul and other leaders were physically anointed. James speaks about anointing the sick. But that's more in reference to those that are physically and spiritually worn down. You can use oil, in a sense, to alleviate the pain. Papists like to use that for the last rites. But it's not scriptural. And also from uh, James chapter 5, it's to do with your faults. Yes, sins as well, but faults first and foremost. On top of that, the prayers of the righteous will heal the sick person. There's no last rites in James chapter 5. Then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head. Aaron, physically, Jesus Christ, our high priest, spiritually, and anoint him. And thou shalt bring his sons and put coats upon them. Physical coats to clothe them because they are priests. Go back to Adam and Eve. They fall. God kills an animal. They are clothed uh, clothed with garments so they can have fellowship with the Lord. Also, they were naked up until they fell. They're now kicked out of Eden. They're going to have to make it in the world, of course. And thou shalt bring his sons and put coats upon them. And thou shalt gird them with girdles. Aaron and his sons, and put the bonnets on them, and the priest's office shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, stature. And thou shalt consecrate Aaron and his sons, consecrate, hallow them, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Gird them with girdles, a girdle, like I say, was a belt, a bonnet, like a hat. If you think of the Amish, they like to wear hats. If you think of the little house on the prairie, they like to wear hats, or they did wear hats back in that 1970s. Uh, television program the Amish are hyper Calvinist also five point Calvinist and they like to dress up they go back to the 15th century 16th century 17th century but they're living in the 21st century when it comes to money you can't kid those people when it comes to the exchange rate today they're like Orthodox Jews Orthodox Jews dress a particular way they uh, abstain from the modern world don't get caught up with the modern world, and yet I guarantee you, your average Orthodox Jew knows about money. Your Orthodox Amish man or woman in America knows about money. They may separate themselves, and that's fine, but that's called double separation. That's not biblical. Your modern Amish man or woman is like a papist during the Dark Ages, would lock him or herself away in a monastery or a nunnery and pray and pray and pray and never speak to anyone. That's not Bible. You are told to go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. If you are saved, there's work to be done. You don't just withdraw yourself and do your own thing. You're told to preach. You're told to get the gospel out. Priest's office shall be theirs for a perpetual stature. Perpetual, ongoing, and uh, most of the new Bibles uh, translate this to be an everlasting statute or statue. Uh, statute, excuse me. But perpetual in reference to Israel's faithfulness. Israel was faithless pretty much from day one. And the Lord gave them generation after generation to get the, uh, to get the house in order. They would fail. And after a while, like I've been saying for quite a while now, he would cancel out the Old Testament. 
and he would initiate the New Testament, the New Covenant. The Jews that received the New, co uh, the new Covenant, the New Testament, were saved. Those that would reject the New Testament, the New Covenant, were damned. And thou shalt consecrate Aaron and his sons. Consecrate, hallow, dedicate, consecrate, and make them holy. Because of not who they were, but what they were. Priests of the Lord, Aaron being the high priest and his sons being assistants. Now we could say this to Aaron as the high priest is a type of Christ. And his sons are a type of those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a saved Jew, Jesus Christ is your everlasting father. If you are a saved Jew. I'm a Gentile, so he's not my everlasting father. I'm a Gentile, so my father is God the father. But if you are a saved Jew, or if you were a saved, uh, saved Jew back in the first century, Christ was your everlasting father. And therefore, you are, you, you, are, you are a son of Jesus Christ in that sense. Look at verse 10. And thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock. Get your hands on the head of the bullock. A large animal, an ox. If you think of ordination, Paul says lay hands suddenly on no man. Don't ordain a novice. Similar sort of a thing. Hands upon the head of the bullock, and thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock, and put it upon the horns of the altar, and thy finger, and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. You've got horns, in a plural sense, and the bottom of the altar, the base of the altar, pictures the cross. Two parts to the cross, and of course the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ would uh, trickle down go to Colossians uh, chapter 1 the animal if you haven't yet realized is a picture of us the animal was killed butchered had its throat cut blood would drain out it was physically mutilated cut into pieces that's a picture of an unsaved man basically going to hell uh, Paul says everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, if you die without Christ, it's a dreadful, eternal state to be in. It's not just separation from God, it's physical torture. Colossians chapter 1, it's so horrendous that most churches don't even want to talk about it. That guy in Bristol wanted to talk about water. He was very proud of water. He thought he was preaching the gospel and I had to rebuke him for it. And I said, people get baptized because they are saved, not to be saved. We're saved by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, past tense, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, right now, even the forgiveness of sins. And yet, Matthew chapter 6 says, if you don't forgive your brother, God won't forgive you. That always gets quoted by Lordship Salvation people. But of course, Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, has a twofold application. First and foremost, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, hostile, dismissive of his credentials, weren't interested in him, nor the temple, and I'll come to that in a moment. And secondly, Matthew chapter 6 has reference, to, uh, has reference for the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? Father, Son, and Spirit decided the Son would go, and when you saw Jesus Christ, you got a glimpse of the Trinity. The firstborn Going back to David, not in a generational sense. David was the youngest of Jesse's sons, but he's called the greatest, the firstborn of God. Ephraim is called the firstborn of God. Out of Israel have I called my son, Hosea chapter 11, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
Jesus Christ is greater than a temple. The Sabbath, Moses, Solomon, so on and so forth. For by him were all things created. That's are in heaven and that's are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. But 14, redemption through his blood. 14, forgiveness of sins via his blood. 13, we've been delivered from darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Go to Matthew chapter 23. It's a tragic mistake. It's a theological blunder when people substitute water for blood. You're saved by the blood. And like I say, you are then to get baptized to show people that you have been saved. A water baptism, one more time, is an outward act, an outward physical act of an inward act, which only God could see. Matthew 23, Matthew 23, look at 17. Ye fools and blind, ye fools and blind. For whether is greater, for what is greater? The gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. Does the gold sanctify, excuse me, does the uh, temple sanctify the gold? Well, of course not. The temple wouldn't sanctify the gold inside of the temple. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, take an oath. It is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. In other words, the emphasis was more on the gold than the one whose house it was, Jehovah, of course. Ye fools and blind, for whether, for what is greater, the gift or the altar, the altar, the altar, that sanctifieth the gift. Go back to the book of Exodus. That was a problem with the Jews, basically. They had a high emphasis on themselves, on their works, on their rituals. When Paul was knocked off his horse, Acts chapter 9, he would say, Lord, what will you have me to do? Now, there's two things to be said about that. First and foremost, you could say this, where Paul was simply offering himself as a humble servant of the Lord, wanted to serve the Lord, and that's true, he would certainly serve the Lord. But there's also a bit of self-righteousness there. Lord, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. I know what I'm all about. I'm a clever Jew. Uh, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That's made clear from uh, 2 Corinthians and elsewhere. And the Lord says to Paul, sit tight, Paul. You'll be blind for two or three days. You can think about your sins. You can think about Israel. You can think about me. And when I'm good and ready, I will call you. But for now, you're not going anywhere. You're going to sit tight. But the bullock, verse 10, is to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation. Aaron and his sons are to put their hands on the head, upon the head of the bullock. And thou shalt kill, and thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord. Kill it by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. All that ever come before me are thieves and robbers. And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock, and put it upon the horns of the altar. Two points, or two parts, horns, plural. Two parts of the horns, literal blood. On the horns of the altar, Christ shed his literal blood. And with thy finger, appropriate the atonements. And with thy finger, Christ the finger of God. And with thy finger, and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. Smear the blood, basically. A picture of Christ's sacred blood shed for our sins. No water mentioned there, of course. An altar, the final part of verse 12, going back to Matthew 23, 17 and beyond. The altar was holy because God is holy. The tabernacle was holy because God is holy. The temple was holy because God is holy. The priest's attire were holy because God is holy. Aaron was holy not because of himself, but in spite of himself. Not because of who he was, but what he was. I'm a saved man, not because of myself, but in spite of myself. 
I'm able to get on my feet every Sunday morning and by the grace of God read the scripture, try and explain it, because God has allowed me to do it. Been anointed to do it, you see. Look at 13. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards, and the cool cow that is above the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, and burn them upon the altar. Sacrifice the animal, barbecue the animal, basically. Turn it over, roast it, until it's ready to be eaten. The priests would eat the sacrifice. The family of the priests would eat the sacrifice, the animal. But this animal is actually a picture of an unsaved person being burnt in hell, scorched in hell throughout all of eternity. And yet some way, somehow, in a way that I don't quite understand, this animal is a picture of us. We've been put to death, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, baptized into Christ. We are identified with him. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. Dung. Old English for excrements. Keep your hand there and go to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3. Dung, excrements, dung. Uh, if you think of old uh, Ezekiel, he was told to bake dung. He was told to lie on his side for a period of time uh, to picture Jehovah's disgust with the Jews. Uh, if you think of Isaiah, he was told to walk around Israel naked. Some of the Old Testament uh, prophets were very unusual. John the Baptist uh, would wear peculiar clothing and uh, would eat locusts. Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, and do count them but dung, but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness. A blemished free church. A spot free church. A holy church. Unblameable. So on and so forth. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness. My own standing. I'm a filthy sinner. I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself. All of my righteousness is as, is as filthy rags. Which is of the law. I can't be saved by the law. But that which is through the faith of Christ. The just shall live by faith. The righteousness which is of God by faith. By faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable, conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. One more and I'll close. Hebrews chapter 13. Paul, you'll serve me when I'm good and ready for you. But for now, wait for Ananias to come. Put his hands upon you. Incidentally, when Ananias was sent to speak to Paul, one of the first things that Ananias said to Paul was brother. He called Paul brother, and Paul hadn't yet been baptized. I wasn't sent to baptize, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but to preach the gospel. Yes, like I say, Paul would baptize, Peter would baptize, but it doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. Listen, if you could be saved by being baptized, repenting of your sins, being a good Catholic, Protestant, independent, fundamental, evangelical, if you could be saved by doing anything, speaking in tongues, prophesying, this or that, why would Christ have to die in the first place? He died for you because you can't be saved by doing anything yourself. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, look at verse 13. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, outside of the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. 
By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruits of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, sacrifices, God is well pleased. But 13 again, let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, outside the camp, not physically, but spiritually, bearing, carrying his reproach. Paul would suffer for the Lord, and if you are a saved person, you too will suffer for the Lord. In fact, I've got time for one more quick verse. Go to 2 Corinthians, and I will close. And that's what service is all about. Standing in state, not the same. And the New Testament Christian was to stand out, was to be a leper, basically, was to be a stench uh, to those that were unsaved. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at uh, 15. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other the savour of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. It's a picture of a suffering Christian, a stench to the lost, but a sweet smelling savour, aroma to the lost, a blessing to those that are saved, and a curse to those that are lost. Exodus chapter 29, Exodus chapter 29, look at verse 6 again please. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head. I put the holy crown upon the mitre. Keep your hand there and go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. We are told to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, is it easy? No, it's very difficult. Uh, you're told to copy him in every possible way, like turn the other cheek, like go the extra mile. And one of the reasons why we do what we do after we are saved is found in 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, like verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Go to Hebrews chapter 2, if you are praying, even so come, Lord Jesus, on a regular basis. If you are looking for the rapture, not the antichrist, if you're looking for Christ, not the antichrist, if you are Diligently awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and praying for it. You are greatly blessed and there's a crown awaiting you. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And I mean every man, not just the elect. Go back to the book of Exodus. 29.6 again. And thou shall put the mitre upon his head, Aaron, high priest, type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and put the holy crown upon the mitre. So crowns are what we are living for once we are saved. Somebody once told me this. They said uh, that their son worked on the London Underground. At the time, he wasn't saved. And his mother told me this. She said it's the hardest job to get, but it's the easiest to lose. It's a bit like your testimony. It's very easy to receive. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is, it is the gift of God, uh, not of works, lest any man should boast. But once you lose your testimony, it's incredibly hard to win back. So we push on as Christians. We get the gospel out as and when we can. We witness to people as and when we can. But what the Lord really wants is total worship. Love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, heart, soul, and strength. And then, and then, and then love your neighbor as yourself. 29.15 Thou shalt also take one ram 
and Aaron and his son shall put their hands upon the head of the ram. Keep your hand there and go to John chapter 6. A ram is, of course, a male sheep. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God. Revelation speaks about the Lamb. And John the Baptist, when he saw the Lamb walking towards him, would say to his apostles, who later became Jesus Christ's apostles, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. A lot of Bible to look at this morning. John chapter 6. Look at verse 27, if you will. Labour not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. So straight away, Messiah is a type of Moses. For Exodus, you've got literal bread, like bread falling from heaven. For the New Testament, yes, you've got physical bread for the most part. You've got the 5,000, the 4,000. But now you've got the spiritual bread. But one more time, labour not. For the meat which perisheth like like a literal bread. But for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Of course the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about himself. Which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him. What shall we do? That we might work the works of God. What shall we do? Master. How can we be made right with the Father? 26. Look at 29. Jesus answered and said unto them. This is a work of God. That ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Go back to the book of Exodus. 29.15 again. Thou shalt also take one ram. Take a ram. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the ram. Put your hands on the head of the ram. Appropriate the atonement. Get your hands dirty. Paul says that the Jews saw Jesus Christ as a stumbling block. And how the Gentiles saw him as a problem to comprehend. Foolishness. Fan over in uh, Romans. Not much has changed over 2,000 years later. People are still weighing up the pros and cons of following the Lord Jesus Christ. But for Aaron and his sons, they were told to put their hands on the ram. And you are told to lay hold of eternal life. Eternal life is a person, not just a principle. You're told to appropriate the atonement. Look at 16. And thou shalt slay the ram, and thou shalt take his blood, and sprinkle it round about upon the altar. Go back to John chapter 6. It's a bloody sacrifice. In the UK, when people say bloody this or bloody that, always check the context. Uh, Bloody used to mean awful, used to mean horrendous. And over a period of time, it got hijacked by godless people. And when when you hear Brits or an Aussie or an Australian saying bloody this or bloody that, they are cursing. The blood of Christ. Yeah. But I'll tell you something. Without the blood of Christ, there is no salvation. It's like the Protestants will underplay the blood, whereas Catholics overplay it. The Church of Rome will idolize the Eucharist, which is a foolish uh, thing to do, whereas Protestants will underplay the Eucharist. Play it right down so the blood isn't efficacious any longer. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Look at verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you... He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. You got it right now. And yet your average Catholic doesn't believe that. Your average Protestant doesn't believe that. Look at 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life. It's a one-off act. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. 
He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. So it's figurative language, of course. And you say, but we've been taught the opposite. We are good Catholics, you may say. And you may say that we have been taught from day one uh, through catechism, through First Communion, that Christ's words should be taken literally, and yet they don't take Matthew 5 literally. If you lust after a woman, pluck out your eye, cut your hands off. You won't find many papists doing that. It's spiritual. It's figurative. You don't believe me? Go to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. All of the Bible is to us, but it's not all for us. Psalm 27, Psalm 27, look at verse 2. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumble and fell. Who's speaking? David. David is a type of Messiah. And here his enemies are trying to pound him, trying to persecute him, trying to destroy him, not physically eat him up. Don't be foolish. That's cannibalism. Even your most apostate Jew back in the Old Testament didn't cannibalize anyone. Even Gentiles, for the most part, back in the Old Testament, didn't cannibalize anyone. Yes, they would sacrifice their siblings, spouses, children to pagan gods, but they didn't physically eat one another one more time. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, to kill me. John chapter 6. They stumbled and fell. I'll give you one more. Go to Micah chapter 3. So for the Old Testament, a physical ram, a physical bullock was to be slain. Blood everywhere. The high priest and his assistants were sacrificing animals on a regular basis because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ arrives. They said, we know who this man is. We know his mother, his brothers and sisters. And yet from Matthew chapter 12, he says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Incidentally, Jesus Christ never once called Mary mother or mum. Of course, mum is a modern word, but never once did he call Mary mother. He called her woman. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. Look at verse 2. Who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them, and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from off them. And they break their bones and chop them in pieces. As for the pots and as the flesh within the cauldron. One final one. Go back to, uh, in fact, go to uh, Numbers and I'll pull all these verses together. The problem with your average Christian today, whether he's a Catholic or a Protestant, is that he probably hasn't been taught church history. He hasn't been taught basic hermeneutics. He hasn't been taught systematic theology. And yes, it is important if you are a Bible teacher, to understand Hebrew idioms. And yet we haven't seen much of that in recent years. Numbers 21, Numbers 21, look at verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. And the Jews spoke against God and against Messiah. Same sort of a thing. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread, this cheap bread, go back to Exodus. We shan't have this man to reign over us. So it's a repeating problem. Moses uh, on one occasion almost wanted to die. David on one occasion almost wanted to die. John 11, they came to see uh, Lazarus, he's dead. And it says how they were making uh, light 
conversation about it, basically, how the Lord was grieved, how he wept, not because Lazarus was dead, but because his people, being the Jews, didn't have any belief in a resurrection. So, 29, 16, And thou shalt slay the ram, and you will slay the Messiah. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Figuratively, not literally. Don't idolise the Eucharist if you are a Catholic. Don't underplay it if you are a Protestant. You're not saved by being baptised. You're saved by the blood. Appropriate the atonement. And thou shalt take his blood, his precious blood, and sprinkle it roundabouts upon the altar. Blood everywhere. Had you seen Christ's cross? Blood everywhere. Crucified between two thieves. Mocking Jews. Antagonistic Gentiles. Pilate rubbing his hands. Herod wondering what has taken place. Darkness in Italy for a period of time. And that eclipse was seen in parts of Europe. Darkness. 17. And thou shalt cut the ram in pieces. And wash the inwards of him and his legs. And put them unto his pieces and unto his head. This is tricky. Christ was crucified. Not a bone was broken. People were shocked that he died so quickly. Father into thy hands I commend. My spirit. It is finished. Bows his head. Gives up the ghost. And here you are struggling to cross reference it. For the typical Christian, Romans 12, you are told to mortify members of your body. You're told to put on the new man. And thou shalt burn the whole ram upon the altar. Physical fire. And some weeks ago I showed you fire loosely connected with the Messiah. Lightning. Tied in with the second advent. Matthew 28. Angel comes down from heaven. Rolls the stone away. No doubt the Holy Ghost sits on the stone. Conquers. Death if you will. And they see the angel of the Lord, a young man. All angels in scripture are men. Only a few occasions are women. Pictured as female angels, like Zechariah. But 95, 96% of times when angels appear in scripture, they are pictured as men. So you got burning the whole ram upon the altar. It is a burnt offering unto the Lord. It is a sweet savour, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. We go back to 17. And thou shalt cut the ram in pieces. Cut it up. Now last week I made the case that this is a picture, if you will, of an unsaved person in hell. Weeping and wailing. Luke 16 is a good picture of that. Father Abraham sent Lazarus that he may dip his finger in my tongue. For I am in this awful place of torment. Abraham sent Lazarus to my brothers. I got five. Warn them about this awful place. And he says to the rich man, they got Moses and the prophets, so that's not enough for them. Nothing is enough for them. And thou shalt burn the whole ram upon the altar. 18. It is a burnt offering unto the Lord, physical fire. It is a sweet savour, it smells good. An offering made by fire unto the Lord. But 17, one final time. And thou shalt cut the ram in pieces, cut it up. And wash the inwards of him and his legs. And put them unto his pieces. Put them all together, basically, and unto his head. You've got an animal which has been sacrificed. If that wasn't bad enough, picturing sin, the animal has to be decapitated, cut up. They're going to burn the animal. The priests are going to eat the animal. They're going to have herbs as well. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you are associated with me, if you put your hand on the ram, and I'm the ram of all rams, if you are associated with me, don't become embarrassed, if you will. That your Messiah has died an awful death. If you put your faith in that. You have present tense everlasting life. And I. Not the father. And I. 
not the Holy Ghost, will raise you up at the last day. Incidentally, John chapter 6 is aimed at the Jews in a synagogue in Capernaum. No Gentiles present. No Christians present. No church present. Your average Catholic doesn't know what he is looking at. If he or she even bothers to read John chapter 6. In fact, keep your hand there and go back to John chapter 6. So David was on the run. His enemies wanted to eat up his flesh, meaning kill him. It's a Jewish idiom, basically. means to put him to death. Micah picks up on this language. And in Micah chapter 3, it's aimed at Israel. But of course, the prophet speaks on behalf of the people. Numbers 21, the Jews are murmuring against Moses and the bread. A bit like lukewarm Christians today. Murmuring about the blood of Christ, the atonement. That's what... uh, Galatians chapter 5 is all about falling from grace. People say, but are we really saved? Is it just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't it easy believism, they call it? Should it not be hard believism? Isn't it hard to get saved? No, it's easy to be saved, but it's hard to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Going back to that woman, telling me about her son on the London Underground. Hardest job to get, she said. Exams, tests, inspections, hardest job to get, but the easiest to lose. In other words, if you mess up, you're fired. If you lose your testimony, it's almost impossible to regain it. John chapter 6, this is one verse which our Catholic friends don't always like you to read to them. 63, it is the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, that quickeneth, makes you alive. The flesh, your flesh, his flesh, the flesh profiteth nothing. If you were to eat the Lord Jesus Christ physically... It wouldn't profit you. He is now physically in heaven. But had you been foolish enough to run towards him in the synagogue in Capernaum, eat him physically, it wouldn't have profited you. He would have died, of course, and you would have been arrested probably for cannibalism. But for the Old Testament, eat the ram. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. Figurative language. Figurative language. And they are life, if you appropriate what he says. Go back to Exodus. 29.19 And thou shalt take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the ram. It's a continuation. The priests never sat down, incidentally. Whereas Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of his father. We have the only faith, or we are parts of the only faith on the face of the earth, which pretty much says it's all been done and dusted. Already reigning with him, seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2, the 24 elders are seated up in heaven. I'm in heaven right now. And yet I'm on my feet preaching to you all during this this live Lord's Day service. 20. Then shalt thou kill the ram and take of his blood and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons and upon the thumb of their right hand and upon the great toe of their right foot And sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. Jesus Christ is God's right hand man. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Nothing appears in scripture for nothing. Kill the ram. 20. Kill the ram. Kill the Messiah. Take of his blood. His blood comes down through the cross. Or falls from the cross onto the ground. He purchases the whole world. Matthew 13. He goes into the Holy of Holies. Hebrews chapter 9. Without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sins. Don't ever overlook that. Don't ever underplay that. Then shalt thou kill the ram and take of his blood and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons. In reference to consecrating Aaron and co. In type, 
in reference to those of us which are saved, having his blood put to our accounts. And upon the thumb of their right hand, and upon the great toe of their right foot, and sprinkle, put the blood upon the altar round about. So for the Old Testament, a physical altar, a rectangular object, Jesus Christ had a physical wooden cross. And last week we mentioned about the horns that were uh, described as part of the Holy of Holies. You've got three parts to the Holy of Holies, which we looked at last week. And of course, you know, if you uh, listened last week, that the uh, horns and the bottom of the uh, Holy of Holies is a picture of the cross. Two parts of the horn and the bottom being the base. It's the cross, of course. Nothing appears in scripture by chance. You were told to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not, not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And yet most Christians, like I say, whether Catholic, or they're not, they're not Christians, but most professing Christians, most people in Christendom, whether Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Evangelical, or what have you, fail terribly to explain Hebrew idioms, the background to the Bible, what it meant for a Jew to say, they are trying to eat up my flesh, they're trying to grind my bones, they are wanting to uh, rip my flesh off me. Yes, they wanted to kill David, but nobody wanted to physically eat David. And Jesus Christ wasn't physically speaking about eating him. 29.21, so keep all that in mind if you will. And thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar, and of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it upon Aaron, and upon his garments, and upon his sons, and upon the garments of his sons with him. And he shall be hallowed, and his garments, and his sons, and his sons garments with him so the priesthood today in the church of rome is basically a rip-off a counterfeit a cheap copy of the old testament priest system basically that's what it is old testament physical blood like i say every day every night catholics all over the world are meeting today this is sunday they will go to their churches to receive a wafer not unleavened bread the priest drinks the wine not the people but for the New Testament, Christ offers, or he, he uses unleavened bread, pitching his body, and he uses the fruit of the vine, pitching his blood. So the Church of Rome doesn't even match the New Testament when it comes to what the priest does every Sunday. 21, you've got Aaron and his sons, a family affair, if you will. Spiritually speaking, we are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I said last Sunday, if you are a saved Jew, Jesus Christ is your father. He's the father of Israel. Isaiah chapter 9. Whereas if you are a Gentile, like myself, our Father is God the Father. Look at uh, 22. Also thou shalt take of the ram the fats and the rump, and the fat that covereth the inwards, and the caul, cowl above the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, and the right shoulder, for it is a ram of consecration. And one loaf of bread, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And one loaf of bread, our Father which art in heaven, give us our daily bread. So on and so forth. And one loaf of bread, physical bread, Old Testament, spiritual bread, New Testament. And one loaf of bread, one church, one body, one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one new birth, one rapture, one second coming. And one loaf of bread, and one cake of oiled bread, and one wafer out of the basket of the unleavened bread, which that is before the Lord. And thou shalt put all in the hands of Aaron, and in the hands of his sons, and shalt wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. A wave offering, literally putting your hands in the air and waving it up to heaven. Paul says how holy men of God should uh, pray without ceasing, without doubting. Put their hands up in the air. 
it is a bit strange to see that. I know I was raised a Catholic and I wasn't taught to put my hands up in the air. Uh, charismatics do that and they've got some scripture for that, incidentally. But here you've got a wave offering. Uh, basically, take the remains of the animal and wave it in the air. 25. And thou shalt receive them of their hands and burn them upon the altar for a burnt offering, for a sweet savour before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So there are some Christians that believe that Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, which of course he did, but they believe he went into hell, which yes, he did go into hell. That's found three or four times in the New Testament. But they go beyond that and say that Christ was tortured in hell, which I reject, was born again, which I reject, and that somehow fire was involved with the uh, death of Christ, picturing the animal back in the Old Testament. But there's no scripture for that. There is no scripture for that. They are reading to the text something which is not there. Always a dangerous thing, of course. 26. And thou shalt take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration, and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be thy part. And thou shalt sanctify the breast of the wave offering, and the shoulder of the heave offering, which is waved and which is heaved up, of the ram of the consecration, even of that which is for Aaron, and of that which is for his sons. A heave offering, like heave ho, heave, basically meaning heavy, although the animal didn't weigh much. There's a picture there of something substantial. If you think of uh, John 12, how it says how the uh, Son of Man must be lifted up, and how he would draw all men unto himself. It's the same sort of a thing. The animal is held up by the priest. Jesus Christ is held up. John chapter 3 speaks about as the Son of Man was lifted up in reference to what took place back in Numbers. As a serpent was elevated up, and if the Jew had been bitten by serpents back in the Old Testament, they were to look at the serpent. And if they looked at the serpent, picturing our faith, looking at the Son, you have salvation. Receiving the Son, you have salvation. For the Old Testament, it was physical salvation. For today, it is spiritual salvation. 28. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons by a statute forever from the children of Israel. For it is an heave offering. And it shall be an heave offering from the children of Israel of the sacrifice of their peace offerings. Even their heave offering unto the Lord. So praise the Lord for today. We have no physical rituals to go through. Only two ordinances. Baptism which you do because you are saved, not to be saved, and the breaking of bread, which you do to remember what he has done for you. But if you take the time to really uh, look at these verses and cross-reference them to the New Testaments, you will find application in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because, of course, Jesus Christ was dealing with the Jews under the law. But if you pick it up from Romans to Philemon, for example, you will really struggle to find any direct application. You have to spiritualize such verses statute forever from the children of israel as long as they would walk with jehovah as long as they would worship jehovah as long as they would stay close to jehovah over time of course they would deviate from jehovah do their own thing create their own rituals religions going back to the pharisees only one two three four jews recognized him i'm thinking of uh, nicodemus i'm thinking of joseph of arimathea i'm thinking of simeon I'm thinking of Anna, just four Jews, four Jews, saw him, received him when he came, 98% rejected him, 29, and the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him, 
to be anointed therein, and to be consecrated in them. At best we could say this, that our state fluctuates, and I hope you know the difference between standing and state. If you are born again, you've got a crown awaiting you. Second Timothy chapter 4, a crown was given to Jesus, picturing his death, uh, son of Joseph, and also picturing his return as son of David. Crowns, garments, our standing, praise the Lord, is perfect, sinless, but our state. Our state, like our testimonies, can fluctuate. But for 29, it's a physical garment. It's holy because it's connected to the holy priest, the high priest. And he's holy not because of himself, but in spite of himself. And for today, we have a practical physical righteousness. That's what Ezekiel chapter 33 is all about. If a righteous man sins and dies, he dies in his sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 30. And that son, that is priest in his stead, shall put them on seven days when he cometh into the tabernacle of the congregation to minister in the holy place. Stead, place, substitution. Christ died in our stead. But on top of that, you've got seven connected here. Seven days. For example, Jehovah is found seven times in the King James Bible. Seven churches are found in the book of Revelation. Scripture has seven titles in your Bible. Seven always means something. Six days, he creates the world, the three heavens. Seventh day, he rests, being Saturday, of course, being a day of rest for the Jews, for the church. Sunday is our day of rest. 31. And thou shalt take the ram of the consecration and seethe his flesh in the holy place. Seethe, boil. They say he was seething with anger, furious. Boil the animal, turn it over, fry it, barbecue it, cut it up, pieces everywhere, blood everywhere. I mean, it's pretty grotesque. It pictures an unsaved person once again. But it also pictures Jesus Christ, whipped, spat upon, blasphemed, carrying this huge cross around Israel. That's pretty bloody. That's pretty graphic. And yet here, the animal is going to be cut in pieces. Christ wasn't cut in pieces. We'll see his pierced hands. Uh, John 20 tells us about uh, his appearing to the apostles. Thomas, put your hands into my hands. Feel the print. Feel the nails. Blessed are those that have seen and believed, like you guys. But blessed are those that have not seen, like us, and yet have believed. 32. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram, physically. New Testament, spiritually. Get it right, people. Don't make the theological blunder and commit spiritual suicide by thinking that somehow if you could eat Christ's hand, his feet, or if the priest could transubstantiate the Lord Jesus Christ, that somehow you could be saved. What did they say back in uh, 1518, 1519? What did the Church of England say? A dangerous fable, a blasphemous deceit, parts of their 39 articles of faith. In fact, it was 1600 and something. They basically anathematized such a cannibalistic medieval interpretation of Christ's death. Aaron and his sons, and only Aaron and his sons, shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But a stranger shall not eat thereof because they are holy, meaning a Gentile. Remember, years ago, long before I was saved, I knew a chap, a non-Catholic, 
and he was friendly with a Catholic that he knew. And strange guy, very strange guy. And every Christmas, this Catholic, a very wealthy man, would go to midnight mass. And uh, he would say to this person I knew, who was a chauffeur, he would say, take me to mass, such and such, and uh, take me home afterwards. I want a good drink, you see. A lot of Catholics like to drink. I'm sure you know that, and smoke. Being a Catholic, incidentally, is a very easy religion to be a part of. You can drink, you can smoke, you can dance, you can do pretty much whatever you want. And these two went to Mass every Christmas and sometimes Easter. And I was always shocked that this friend of mine went with this friend of his. I went up to receive communion. A non-Catholic. That's always stuck in my mind. Both lost, of course. Both participating in a false man-made system. The traditions of men, like Mark chapter 7. But here, the Gentile, the non-Jew, isn't to have any part of this ritual. Now, for today, we would say this. If somebody was to come into the room right now, who I don't know, who Patrick doesn't know, and see the bread, see the juice on the table, and say, can I partake of the bread? Can I partake of the juice? We would say, well, first of all, who are you? Are you saved? Are you born again? Give us your testimony. We don't spend weeks and weeks and weeks profiling people. That's what the churches do. Your average Protestant church will spend weeks before they baptize anybody. Weeks. They want to get to know you, you see. But I would ask simple questions, as I know Patrick would. Are you born again? When were you born again? Are you saved? Do you know the Lord? Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Questions like that. And if we thought that the person was born again, then no problem. Take of the bread, take of the juice. No problem whatsoever. That's what is going on. And they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But a stranger, in the context, a Gentile, for today, an unsaved person, shall not eat thereof, shall not eat thereof, because they are holy, and if aught of the flesh of the consecrations of the bread remain until the morning, then thou shalt burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. Don't leave it overnight. Food which is left out overnight cannot be eaten. If the Ants don't get to it, the mice may get to it, the rats may get to it, the elements will get to it. It's common sense, isn't it? If you provide a meal, you eat it, and if you can't eat it, you cover it and put it into the fridge. Similar sort of a thing. Animals are being sacrificed, like I say, blood everywhere. Herbs are going to be used, they're going to be preparing a meal for the priests, uh, the priests each and every day. Nothing, nothing is to be left overnight, because such is holy. 35 on our clothes. And thus shalt thou do unto Aaron and to his sons according to all things which I have commanded thee. Seven days thou shalt consecrate them. Seven days, seven bullocks. Seven bullocks, seven days. It's an ongoing sacrifice. You can't miss it, can you? But if you try to uh, cross-reference to the Pauline epistles, you're going to struggle. And yet I've got one verse which I will give you next week from Philippians. Where Paul alludes to the physical sacrifices. But we will return next week and probably have one more week looking at Exodus chapter 29. And then we will arrive at chapter 30. And by the grace of God we are 22 months. 22 months into our almost two year study looking at the book of Exodus. So we are working our way through Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29 
And just a very brief recap. First of all, the priests have been given the task of preparing for these sacrifices. If you think of your average chef today, the best chefs in the world are all men. The best hairdressers in the world today are all men. The best choreographers in the world today are all men. The best producers, directors, script writers, businessmen, etc., 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 are all men. That's just how it is. It may not be PC, it may not be politically correct, but it is a fact nonetheless. From 29.23, it speaks about one loaf of bread. And from Matthew 4.4, the word of God says how men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. John 14, the Lord Jesus Christ made the case that if you loved him, you would keep his words. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us our daily bread, so on and so forth. But from Matthew chapter 16, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 6 to get the context. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees, like false doctrine. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Had no idea what he was talking about. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye, your, uh, why reason ye among yourselves? Because ye have brought no bread. Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Such short memories. How is it that ye do not understand that I spake unto you not concerning bread, like John chapter 6? It's not my literal body, it's not my literal blood. That ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So very basically, or very briefly, go back to the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 29. Bread for the Old Testament was physical bread, obviously. New Testament, it is spiritual bread. And hopefully this morning, as we go through this final look at Exodus, chapter 29, I want to discuss, if I may, Hebrew idioms. But basically, what you've got is God the Father speaking to God the Son, working through God the Holy Ghost. So Moses is a picture of God the Father. Aaron is a picture of God the Son. And the Holy Ghost is a picture, or the sons of Aaron are pictured by the Holy Ghost, the seven spirits of the Lord. So one more time, Moses, picture of God the Father. Aaron, picture of God the Son. Aaron's sons, type pictures of the Holy Ghost, seven spirits of the Lord. Also from verses 19 and 20, Speaking about sprinkling of blood, the sprinkling of blood, pictures hearing the word of God, working the word of God, like be doers of the word of God, not just hearers of the word of God, and walking in the way of God, like in the footsteps of the master. Paul would say, be followers of me, as I am a follower of Christ. In fact, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's important that we take the time to look at these verses. And understand the relevance uh, to today. First Peter chapter 2. Look at uh, 21. For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example. That ye should follow his steps. That ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. 
who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot go wrong. Go back to Exodus, and let's get started today, if we may. Exodus chapter 29, Exodus chapter 29, look at verse 36, please. And thou shalt offer every day a bullock for a sin offering for atonement, and thou shalt cleanse the altar, when thou hast made an atonement for it, and thou shalt anoint it to sanctify it. Keep your hand there, and go to James chapter 4. Uh, James chapter 4, look at verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Go back to Exodus. So, cleansing, forgiveness, confession, so on so forth, is a occurrence which we should all be aware of. For the Old Testament, it was done via a physical animal. For us, it's already been done. The atonement has been provided for, and I, I never tire of speaking about that. I never tire of basking in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 37. Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar, and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy, not whosoever, but whatsoever, like man or beast. Because this altar is connected with heaven. The high priest, like Aaron, is connected with the Holy Ghost. Moses is connected with God the Father, if you will. And Aaron's sons are also connected with the Holy Ghost. But Aaron, strictly speaking, is connected with God the Son. So if you think of the occasions when people came into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, they touched his garments, were healed. But on one occasion, from the Gospel of Luke, it says how he perceived that virtue had gone out of him. And he turned around to seek out the woman who had touched his clothing. Basically, he wanted her to step forward and say, Yes, it was me, Master. I came to be healed, and I was healed. He wanted to show Israel, first and foremost, that he was the Messiah. But not just that, he wanted her to confess, if you will. It's a very mysterious piece of scripture, incidentally, from the Gospel of Luke. 38. Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. So two lambs, uh, first year, day by day, continually. In fact, look at verse 39, which helps us to understand verse 38. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning. And the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. So it's like this. You should begin your day speaking to the Lord, asking him to fill you with the Holy Ghost. You should close your day speaking to the Lord, asking him to cleanse you of your sins and to fill you with the Holy Ghost. Start your day with the Lord. Conclude your day with the Lord. Here, the day would begin with a lamb, a literal lamb, being brought to the priest to be sacrificed. God deals through sacrifices, you see. That's what Hebrews is all about the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For today, we confess our sins, going back to James chapter 4 and also James chapter 5. We confess our sins to stay in fellowship with the Lord. We confess our sins to enjoy a good conscience. We confess our sins to get our prayers answered. We don't bite and devour one another. And if we do bite and devour one another, we pay the penalty, of course, pay the consequences of it. Look at verse 40. And with the one lamb... A tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of an hin of beaten oil and the fourth part of an hin of wine for a drink offering. You've got a breakdown of what is needed for the priests to sacrifice the animals. Again, this whole chapter and the ones before and the ones after deal with men. Priests, not women. Priests in the Bible were men. All of the best cooks, chefs, doctors, surgeons, architects, surveyors. I mean, all of them 
all of the best composers, conductors, artists, songwriters, singers, I mean, all of them have all been men. You may have the exception here and there, but for the most part, all men, all Caucasian as well, all Caucasian, sons of uh, Japheth, if the truth were known. But of course, you can't say that. It's not PC. You have to elevate the small man. There was a story in the paper this week. In fact, there's been a few stories in the paper the past few days about the transgender movement. Mm. A lot of people wanting to have their surgery reversed. And of course, they can't. And when this first became a story, maybe two or three years ago, a lot of Christians around the world, like myself, were saying, this is terrible. Mutilation cannot be reversed. Think very carefully before you have operations, so on and so forth. And we were called bigots. We were called uh, pretty nasty things. We were called fascists, killjoys. We were pretty much slandered, told to be quiet. Now, some of those people are wanting to have a reversal done on their surgery. Are we still bigots? Are we still killjoys? Are we still nasty pieces of work? We were trying to speak up for those people. But here's the thing. You've got a breakdown here of what is needed from verse 40. And one more time, let's read it. And with the one lamb, a tenth deal of flour mingled with a fourth part of an hin of beaten oil and a fourth part of an hin of wine for a drink offering. So it's four to six gallons and six to eight pints. Drink offering. Keep your hand there and go to Philippians chapter 2. In biblical times, the drink offering wasn't consumed. Uh, If you think of King David, on one occasion he poured out the drink onto the ground. Uh, The Jews wouldn't touch the drink offerings. But pagans, papists especially, and apostate Protestants, like to drink the literal wine during their mass. In fact, today, in Rome, an apostate by the name of John Newman is being made a saint And you've got the um, Prince of Wales present. You've got one of the cabinet ministers there present. Uh, No doubt leading Protestants will be there uh, to experience the canonization, as they call it, of John Newman, an apostate bishop from the Church of England who went over to Rome. And if you really think about that, you can't help but think what's an appalling apostate he really was because it's like this if you understand justification by faith if you understand that we are declared righteous we are declared holy we are declared good we are safe in the beloved through justification by faith in christ alone if you get that clear in your head and perhaps newman never really understood that but let's say that he did for argument's sake although in the church of england it is slightly camouflaged go to philippians chapter 2 just wait there for one moment He goes over to the Church of Rome. They anathematize that belief. They say that if you think you are saved, if you think you are justified by faith in Christ alone, let them be anathema. They curse it. So now he's got a problem, hasn't he? He's gone from justification by faith, if he ever believed it, if he ever understood it, to justification by faith and works. And Paul says in the book of uh, Galatians how he has fallen, not Newman, but anyone for that matter, how such has fallen from grace basically trying to be saved another way. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. A sacrifice like a drink offering. Go to Luke 22, and there'll be many people in Rome right now, I would imagine, uh, rejoicing in this English cardinal being made a saint, which means the ignorant can... Pray to him. Whoever who, who heard of sinners making sinners saints? Think about it. 
Who ever heard of sinners making sinners saints? Doesn't God make sinners saints? Luke 22. Luke 22. Look at 19. And he took bread, unleavened bread, and gave thanks and break it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Bread, body of Christ. This do in remembrance, in commemoration of me. Likewise, also the cup, not the chalice. Likewise, also the cup after supper. This is a meal. Not just a quick breaking of bread, if you will. This is a supper, a meal. Saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. I'll give you one more. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Back in 1546, there was a woman called Anne Askew. And Anne Askew was 25 years old. And she was a poet. She was a married woman. She was a Protestant. And she was being tortured to death by a Catholic bishop. She would have made a saint, of course, in the Church of Rome. She is thought of as a heretic. And yet didn't Paul call himself a heretic in the book of Acts? I think he did. And she said this, quotes, I have read God made man, but that man can make God, I have never read. <laughs> Close quotes. I concur with that statement. And she was tortured to death by a good godly Catholic bishop. And uh, she, of course, is in heaven today. But I concur with that statement. Matthew 26, Matthew 26, look at 29. But I say unto you, Jesus speaking, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. No wine. No wine. The papists use red wine, white wine. And that's one of the reasons why so many priests are alcoholics. Henceforth of this fruit of the vine, until the day that's, until the day, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. But I say unto you, the apostles, I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. Could it be any clearer? Until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Go back to Exodus. Thousand year reign, of course. So just a slight detour, but I thought it was worth it. Uh, just to add some more material to Old Testament, New Testament. Hebrew idioms, which I'll speak about more this morning. 2941, 2941. And the other lamb thou shalt offer at even, even, evening. And shalt do thereto according to the meat offering of the morning, and according to the drink offering thereof. For sweet savour, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Uh, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the animal. Matthew chapter 3 speaks about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And charismatics get that all messed up. I think it is in reference to them. It's not. Matthew chapter 3 is speaking about a baptism in hell for the unsaved. The wheat and the tares, the chaff, the chaff, uh, the goats and the sheep. Take the time to study these expressions. So important. So we get that wrong. We get everything wrong. And here an offering made by fire unto the Lord. 42, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. Show me the blood. Go back to earlier chapters when the destroyer was sent from the father, being the son of God, of course, the destroyer was sent and the Jews were told to put the blood over the doors and where the blood was over the doors, judgment was suspended. You've got two views in Christendom. You've got imputation, you've got infusation, basically. Infusation is held by probably 90% of Christendom. Believe, baptised, confirmation, go to church, go to mass, 
do your penance, do your deeds and your beads, that's infusation. That's what Newman basically threw his lot in with, a faith and works package which Revelation condemns. That's the Nicolaitans also. Imputation, faith in Christ alone, it's already been done for you. Show me the blood, and where I see the blood I will will, uh, pass over, I will suspend judgment. One more time, last part of verse 42. Where I will meet you and speak there unto thee. God is speaking, no doubt Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the express image of God Almighty. No man has seen God, only Jesus Christ, of course, has been made visible to mankind. But one day we will see the Father, uh, Matthew chapter 5, during a thousand year reign, of course. Look at verse uh, 43. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. My glory. He won't share his glory with anyone else. And that's why if you are a teacher, be careful not to allow people to puff you up too much. I remember some years ago, came across a clip online of a well-known preacher. He's now dead. And they were having a meeting in his church. And on the wall of his church was a huge portrait of him. Like what the North Koreans have in North Korea, or the Chinese in China, or the Russians in Russia. And I thought, this preacher knows the Bible better than anybody. Of course, Satan knows his book better than anybody, really. But this preacher was quite content to have his picture on the wall. Are they worshipping him? Are they aware that that is almost bordering idolatry? Some years ago, we went to Spurgeon's Tabernacle in South London, travelled round the grounds, very ostentatious, very impressive, a statue of Charles Spurgeon, to be fair to him, it was put up many years after he died. But nonetheless, whose decision was it to put up a statue of Charles Spurgeon? I was very conscious when we did the Oliver Cromwell documentary, whether or not to photograph some of the statues of Cromwell, uh, whether or not to film some of his uh, monuments around the UK. I won't say it's idolatrous, because Cromwell didn't order such statues to go up. Spurgeon didn't order such statues to go up, but this preacher in America did. This preacher in America decided to allow these statues to go up uh, to commemorate him. Got to watch it. But here the Lord is speaking, and here it's all to do with blood, literal blood, via the sacrifice of an animal or two. But he won't share his glory with anyone, and that's why as a former Catholic, I cringe when I look at papists worshipping Mary, and they do, and worshipping dead people, and they do, King Saul was condemned for consulting a dead person. And back in the Old Testament, of course, I am referring to Samuel. And he lost his kingdom as a result of worshipping, of consulting a dead person. And to see Protestants flocking to Rome today to pay homage to John Newman, an apostate Protestant who, like I say, betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, sold out justification by faith threw his lot in with a faith and works system which will condemn millions, millions, millions of Catholics to hell forever. is just shocking to see Protestants lining up to pay homage to this character and to uh, just to be present. Turns my blood cold, makes me sick to the stomach. Isn't it interesting how Protestants always pay homage to Rome, always bow down? You don't see Papists coming to Britain and paying homage to Protestants apologising for Anne Askew's murder back in 1546. What would she say one more time? I have read, God made man. I believe that. But that man can make God, like bring him down from heaven, turn the bread into the body. That's what they call the uh, mass, the Eucharist. Transubstantiation. 
I have never read, close quote. Well, I stand with Anne. She was completely correct in what she said. And if she was a heretic, then I stand with her. The Jews said that Paul was a heretic. And he said, yes, that's fine by me. Take a stand if you are a Christian. Don't just sit on the fence. Take a stand. Don't allow the world to pass you by. God won't share his glory with anyone. Look at 44. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. So one more time. Moses, picture of God the Father. Aaron, picture of God the Son. Aaron's sons are pictures of the Holy Ghost. The seven spirits of the Holy Ghost found over in Isaiah chapter 11. Aaron, picture of Jesus Christ, his sons, picture of Christ's brothers. If you are a saved Jew, Jesus Christ is your father, going back to Isaiah chapter 9. So you could say this, that if you are a saved Jew, Jesus Christ is your father. You are sons of Jesus Christ if you are a saved Jew. But if you are a Gentile, like we are, then he is our older brother, and our father is, of course, God the Father. 45, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will be their God. Me, them, I, personal pronouns. One more time. And I will dwell among the children of Israel. The word of God became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I will dwell among the children of Israel. I will tabernacle among the children of Israel, not the church, the children of Israel, and will be their God, their God. He's not your God until you receive him. Jesus Christ isn't your saviour until you receive him. There's no such thing as the brotherhood of mankind. The brotherhood of man. It's a socialist invention. It's not scriptural. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Go to First Peter chapter 2. This is a Jewish book. First Peter chapter 2. First uh, Peter chapter 2. I want to spend a few moments just building on these Hebrew idioms. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 2. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. Desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Are you a literal baby? Of course not. Is the word of God milk? Full fat? Skimmed? Plant milk? Yes, I'm being somewhat facetious, but follow me. As newborn babes... Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have you tasted the Lord Jesus Christ? Think about this. Have you tasted him? Look at chapter 1. Look at verse 8. Whom having not seen. In reference to Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Ye love in whom thou now ye see him not. Yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You haven't seen him. And yet you, 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 you've been asked, have you tasted them? If so be, two, three, if so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have you tasted them? How can you taste them if you haven't seen them? It's symbolic, of course. Look at uh, verse five. As lively stones, living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Are you a living stone? Could you roll down a hill? Are you a house? Are you a front door? Are you a back door? Are you a plank of wood? Are you a door handle? Are you a doorbell? Are you a window? Can't you see what is being spoken of here? It's symbolic language. Six. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Sion 
a chief cornerstone. Was Jesus Christ a physical stone? Was he? Was Simon Peter a physical stone? You'll be called Cephas. Are we physical stones? Of course not. Chief cornerstone elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So it's obvious to me, and go to Psalm 34, that Hebrew idioms are found time after time in the Bible. This book was written by Jews, not Gentiles. The Jewish culture has no similarities to Gentile culture. And that's why Bible believers need to be so careful when they hit passages like, eat my flesh, drink my blood, or a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. Psalm 34, Psalm 34, look at verse 8. O taste, and see that the Lord is good. How could a Jew taste Jehovah? Jehovah only appeared to select persons back in the Old Testament. The Holy Ghost came on select people back in the Old Testament. The Jews as a people didn't taste Jehovah, let alone even see Jehovah. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man that trusteth in him. It's a Hebrew idiom. Taste, see, look, believe, receive, trust, believe. These are terms which must, must be understood. And if you don't understand these terms, you will perish. This book is laid out in such a way that if you're not careful, you will break your neck and go to hell forever. Go back to the book of Exodus. So, this has been the final look at chapter 29. Next week, we look at the final 10 chapters. 22 months so far, reading about the Jews, a people, following their leader, Moses, type of God the Father, who will prepare Aaron, type of God the Son, for ministry. God the Father prepares God the Son for ministry. God the Son spends time in the wilderness, preparing himself for ministry. Aaron's sons are going to follow in their father's footsteps. If you think of the apostles in the New Testament, for example, when Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, they had a meeting, Acts chapter 1, they picked themselves Matthias to replace him. Church of Rome liked that. They said, there you are, you see, apostolic succession, but hold on. Acts chapter 12, James, the son of Zebedee, is murdered by Herod. No replacement, no resurrection. The office of the apostle, apostolic authority, is starting to fade away. James is murdered by Herod, no resurrection, no succession. By the end of Acts chapter 20, 21, 22, right up until 28, nobody is healed of anything. Old Trophimus is sick. Paul is almost blind. God is withdrawing the sign gifts. So all of this hocus pocus in Rome today, making a saint out of an apostate is abhorrent. It is heretical. It is blasphemy. And one last time, I have read, God made man. Amen to that. Man is made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1. But, but... That man, like a priest, can make God, bring him down from heaven, really butcher John chapter 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. But that a man can make God, I have never read. And I stand with Anne Askew. I think she's probably one of the greatest females that Britain has ever produced, died at the young age of 25. And I'll give you one other thing to think about. There are three heavens. Your average Catholic has no idea where he is going upon death. Three heavens. Not two, not one, three heavens. The kingdom of God is not the kingdom of heaven. Peter was sent to the Jews. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Your average Catholic and your average apostate Protestant has no understanding about these things. 
doesn't know it, doesn't understand it, can't understand it, can't grasp it. If you were to sit down with such a person and ask them to explain these mysteries to you, they couldn't. These aren't deep mysteries, incidentally, but if you don't read the Bible, if you're not a Bible reader, if you're not a Bible believer, you won't appreciate some of these biblical facts. Physical bread for the Old Testament, I've shown you it's spiritual bread for the New Testament. Unleavened bread for the Old Testament was physical. For the New Testament, like Matthew 16, it's tied in with false doctrine. Most of the Old Testament, like chapter 20 from the book of Exodus, is negative. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Beware of this, beware of that. Most of what Paul wrote was negative. This is a negative book. This is a controversial book. It's laid out in a way that if your heart is no good, God will destroy you. And that's why Christ spoke about unleavened bread being a picture of false doctrine. But First Peter chapter 2 and also Psalm 34 really make the case how this is, for the most part, symbolic. But for the Old Testament, it was physical, it was literal, a physical priesthood. Physical descendants of a physical priest, whereas Christ is our spiritual priest. We are his spiritual descendants. We break bread in a spiritual sense, not in a physical sense. Although we do physically break bread, you understand, and we physically drink the fruit juice. But we don't take it physically. We don't take it seriously in the sense that we don't worship the cup or the bread. We leave it as it is, and we allow it to stay as it is in a figurative sense.